humans have great capabilities, and somehow we've had some sense that the officials uh, had genetic uh, capabilities that the rest of us didn't have. We, I hope we can change that. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Wednesday, October 14th. That was Eleanor Ostrom, one of the winners of this year's Nobel Prize in Economics you heard at the top. On the podcast today, we're going to tackle some economic riddles. But first, the Planet Money indicator. The indicator is $3.6 billion. That was very dramatic. That was a dramatic read of the indicator, Adam. Thank you. It was a very dramatic indicator. That is how much profit J.P. Morgan Chase reported earning in the third quarter of this year. Now, J.P. Morgan Chase's profits were led by their investment banking division. They doubled their profits, more than doubled their profits over last year. turns out that Getting rid of many of your key competitors, having them go out of business, is is very good for business. But the other interesting thing is it's not that they're yet making money off of consumer loans. They're still losing money, but they're losing less money. And the pace of change suggests that soon it will be profitable again to lend money to consumers, which implies that we'll be getting more credit card, you know, higher credit card uh, limits and more mortgages and the like. And some people are saying that J.P. Morgan Chase may be a harbinger of good things to come in our economy. Now, one thing, Adam, though, is is that it's hard to figure out how to think about this. You know, here we have a banking industry that was, you know, a year ago was on death's door, if not for massive, you know, government infusions of capital. And, um, I would say a year ago was dead, right? Sure. If not for government, right? I mean, right. J.P. Morgan Chase and every other major bank in America would have gone out of business. I think that's almost a clearly safe thing to say. It's a safe thing to say, right? And, and J.P. Morgan Chase, by all accounts, was one of the healthiest and safest of, of those of those big banks. Right, but most even prudent, they, but yeah, even they were in a lot of trouble. They were in yeah. a lot of trouble, and and today they're making record profits. And it's hard to know, like, is that on the one hand maybe that's a sign that the economy is getting better? On the other hand, it seems like. It seems hard to imagine that they're not benefiting in some way from the the a taxpayer funded bailout, and I just don't know how to feel about that. I don't yeah, know. I know it's it's. There's no question. This is not fair in any sense of the word fair. I would say the way one person I saw describe it is, in war we have collateral damage, that horrible euphemism for civilians who die as a result of errant bombs or even accurately positioned bombs. Here we have collateral winners that we had this economic catastrophe a year ago, and the way it was solved meant that a whole bunch of really, really rich people, for n- no reason, no, no, nothing they did, they got to be even richer and make more benefit. And, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it's going to take years to sort of sort that out, but and, and it's, it's hard not to, to feel sick in your stomach about it. Right. So on today's podcast, though, we're going to go from the macro to, to the micro and answer some of your economic riddles, although I suppose this could be sort of considered an economic riddle. How does a bank that's almost failing a year ago make record profits in one year? But uh, we're going to go down, to, down a level to um, something that our listeners, you out there, have been wondering about. And first up, we have a question from listener Mike Acoustic. 
for economist Emily Oster. Uh, Emily is one of our favorite economists. She's at the Chicago Booth School of Business. We've had her on the podcast before to tackle questions about Ticketmaster and food portions. This time we asked her Mike's question about minimum wage. Why is it that those U.S. cities that have raised minimum wage above the federal level have more employment and a healthier economy? Is there a point where minimum wage is so low as to discourage job seekers from getting jobs? So why is it that places that are doing better have have a higher minimum wage? Right. That's would you say that was basically the question? Right. Or uh, well, I mean, it's or well, he's asking why is it that places with a higher minimum wage are doing better? <laughs> so right. I guess okay. he's so, implying sorry. He wants, a it, he wants to relationship. ask in that direction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I would actually push back the other way and say one of the the issues we face very frequently in trying to evaluate the impact of policies like something like the minimum wage is that you have to think about the reason why the minimum wage was changed. Right. So say your city is doing really well. Everything's going great. There's a lot of growth. Everybody's getting richer. That's a situation in which you might want to think about raising the minimum wage, in which that's going to be more attractive, partially because things are going well and and people have more money to pay their workers, but also to the extent that things are already going well and wages are already going up, moving the minimum wage up doesn't affect that many people. So if you think that, that the main people who are opponents of increases in the minimum wage are people who are hiring people at the minimum wage... If you take a place where everybody's already getting paid well above the minimum wage, no one will object to raising it, or very few people are likely to object to raising it. So politically, it's going to be easier to pass those kind of laws in places where wages are already are already higher, places that are already doing better. And, and if I can so just I, jump in here, it, so, it sounds like yeah. you're taking issue with the implicit... The causation. 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 In his, he's yeah. saying that, like, he, he, he seems to be saying that the minimum, when you raise the minimum wage, it helps your economy. And you're saying, no, no, no. It's generally what happens is the economy is doing well, and then people raise the minimum wage. But there's not actually a causal link between a higher yeah. minimum wage and a, high, a good economy. Yeah. I guess I would say that I think um, there could be a causal link between higher minimum wage and better economy in that direction. But I think it's, it's equally likely or I would say more likely that the causal link goes in the other direction, that things are going well and you raise the minimum wage. I will say this is actually the canonical example in in economics that you're taught in a class about labor economics on um, why you have to be concerned about reverse causality. So there's a paper from the early 90s which tries to evaluate by um, David Card and Alan Kruger, um, which tries to evaluate this by looking at uh, looking at a period where New Jersey changed its minimum wage and Pennsylvania didn't, um, and looking at how employment changed before and after in these two places, arguing that these are comparable for other reasons, and looking at one of them changes the minimum wage, one doesn't, what happens to employment in the one that changed the minimum wage relative to the one that didn't. Uh, and they find basically very little, little or no effect on uh, on employment. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of. But anyway, th- this is a this is a good example of a place where it's very, very difficult to figure out which direction, uh, which is what's causing what, uh, which is something economists, especially in these applied fields, think a lot about. Because to me, when I first started studying economics, I thought this was the absolute no brainer of all no brainers, which is. If you make something more expensive, meaning hiring the lowest paid people, then people will do less of it. And so minimum wage, it seemed to me, no question 
there are people unemployed because of the minimum wage. There are fewer people employed because of the minimum wage. Um, but then David Card in, the, in that famous paper, he's an he's a economics professor at Berkeley who's um, most known for this work, although there's been counterwork that, that argues the exact opposite that's also well-respected, yeah. um, says, no, 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 that's, that's not right. Um, and, 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 but isn't this as simple as the demand curve slopes downward? It's like the most basic thing. It's like if, if there was a minimum thing that apples all have to cost $3, people would buy fewer apples. It's just we know that that's how economics works. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to wonder. It depends on the, the demand curve does slope down, but it depends on, on where, where it is also. So if no, if there nobody in equilibrium, I mean, imagine if in equilibrium nobody is paying anybody less than than minimum wage. So everybody's marginal product, the thing that they're able to produce in their job is seven dollars, and then so everybody's getting paid seven dollars because we think people get paid their marginal product, the amount that they're able to produce. Then it doesn't matter if your minimum wage is five dollars, six dollars, whatever. There's nobody who's who you would be interested in paying less than that. So I think that's. That's the argument under which it wouldn't matter that the right. demand curve slopes down. It does slope down over some range. It doesn't doesn't really. There's nobody in that in that area. So I just want to quickly, Alex, explain this. The demand curve slopes downward. You just you know that simple graph from your Econ 101 course where supply meets demand. The demand curve goes downward, meaning the higher prices go. That's the bottom axis, the x-axis. The higher prices go, the less the demand is. That's the the y-axis on the, on, the, on the left side. Demand slope curves downward as economics speak for when things cost more, fewer people buy them. So what she's saying is, yes, if on most goods, if the government steps in and says, okay, no one can charge less than this, you know, apples cost $3 per apple no matter what, then fewer people are going to buy them. But what if they didn't say apples are going to cost $3? They said apples... You have to set a minimum price of apples will only cost two cents. Right. And apples cost more than two cents. You can't find an apple right now for two cents. So that would have that ruling would have no effect basically on the price of apples because apples already cost more than what the government is saying they should cost. Right. So if minimum wage was 50 bucks an hour, that would have a huge impact. There'd be massive turmoil in America. But because minimum wage is so much lower than the vast majority of people make, it has a minimal impact. Now, the other argument is that people are different from apples, and when you pay people more, they then go on to demand more goods. They buy more cell phones and haircuts and pay rent and all the other things they do, and that money is recycled through the economy. So that is part of the argument from other people saying, oh, no, minimum wage is different. It doesn't overall suppress wages. But we will leave that to the experts to argue over. Yes, exactly. All right. Our next question comes from you, Adam. You had a riddle. And uh, this is a question that you put to Robert Frank. Robert Frank is a professor of economics at Cornell University, author of the fantastic Economic Naturalist's Field Guide. I'd say Emily Oster, Robert Frank, two of our very favorite economists. Right. Very different perspectives. Very cool people. Frank goes out looking for these types of riddles. He's constantly trying to figure out little weird mysteries, as, as, as we've had him on talking about. So I wanted to ask him one I've been wondering about lately. I'm, I'm a bit of a computer geek on the weekends. I like to mess around with my computer. And I've been noticing how crazy software is priced. Um, I'm, I'm looking at one product called BB Edit, which is a 
well-known text editor that costs, I think, $125. And there's several products that some people say are better, some people say are worse, but don't seem radically different that are either free or 8 bucks. In fact, BB Edit itself has a free product mm -hmm. um, that, that it effectively competes with, obviously a product with fewer features. Um, have you taken a look at or do you have thoughts about why software is so non-standardized in the pricing? You can spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars for Microsoft Office, but you can get Open Office for free. You can spend hundreds of dollars for some video games, but there's tons of games for free on the Internet. I, I get really confused about the economics. Yeah, this is a, a prime example of a, a product category where all the costs of getting the product produced are essentially fixed costs. Once you've got the software code written for the deluxe version of it, then the marginal cost of giving somebody a copy of it is essentially zero. That means... Uh, if there were pure competition and price got driven down to marginal cost, as in the traditional models, then the companies could never recover their cost of developing the program. They wouldn't make any money. They'd lose money. So they've got to charge some people a price well above marginal cost of zero. And who is that? Well, again, they, they always look for a way to segment the market. They can't ask you when you walk in the store, how much are you willing to pay? But they can do this. They can say, here's the deluxe version, and then they can take a few lines of code out. Here's an editing program that doesn't do quite as much as the deluxe version, and say the price of this one is high, the price of this one is low, maybe even free, and you take your pick. And the people who really care the most about the features are the ones who are willing to jump over that hurdle and pay the high price. So the price is almost like market research or price exactly. discrimination. We're, we're, we're essentially relying on the buyer to identify himself how much he cares about price by deciding whether or not to make do with a lower quality model or pay the higher price and get the higher quality model. Right. I've heard the same thing said about Starbucks that if, if you look at the actual cost of producing a ice double latte mocha whatever um, – it's only a few pennies more cost than just a regular cup of right. coffee, but it costs five dollars instead of a buck fifty or right. whatever. I don't know what the yeah, price it's is. the exact same phenomenon. They're, they've they've got a lot of costs in getting the franchise up and running and delivering all those things that they do. Uh, the marginal cost of making the drinks that's not so different one drink versus another. So they try to figure out which of the drinks people care most about put high prices on those and lower prices on the others. I see. So so if you run Starbucks or you run a software company, you're basically saying, "All right, I got thousand I got I've got millions of people out there. I know some of them are just penny pinchers and will only pay the minimum, and some of them are willing to pay 4 or 5 bucks above my cost. I could make 800% profit right. or more." Right. And 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 so you discover that by creating slightly different products with different prices. And there's an incredible variety of ways they do that. I mean, the Apple laptop came out a couple of years ago in a black version and a white version. Previously, it had been only a white version. And they charged about $150 extra for the equivalent black version. And people were, many of them, glad to pay it. Others who didn't care that much about uh, color or, or and price was more important for them, they said, well, I'm going to get the white one. I'll get the cheap one. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to explain marginal price, okay? There's this idea of margin, on mm -hmm. the margin, mm -hmm. the marginal price, the marginal consumer. My understanding is beforehand, the way people would think is I make shirts, say, and 
I just made 10 shirts. It cost me 100 bucks. So I'm going to charge at least 10 bucks per shirt and maybe a little extra so I can make a profit. And then economists came along and said, uh-uh, charge three bucks per shirt because we figured out that's the marginal cost. And I think intuitively that doesn't make any sense at all. You should mm-hmm. pay the average cost for all of them, not the marginal cost. So can you help me define what the marginal cost is and why it, is that is that right and why does it make sense? Yeah, the average cost is a pretty simple concept. You just take all the costs you've incurred and divide it that number by the number of units you've produced. So in your example, $100 total cost, 10 shirts, that's $10 average cost per shirt. If you're not going to charge people an average of $10 for the shirts, those 10 shirts you sell them, you're going to lose money. So that's a constraint right out of the box. Uh, you've, you've got to expect that you're going to be able to cover your average costs or else you won't enter that business in the first place. Then the question is, uh, can you come up with a pricing scheme that will make you do better than if you charge the same price to everyone for a shirt? So suppose you could sell your shirts for 11 bucks each. And suppose the marginal cost of making, you know, now that you've got your factory set up, is only $3 per shirt. Well, you could make money if you charged 11 bucks. That's true. But what if you charged 12 bucks or 15 bucks for some of the shirts you sold and you put a special emblem on those and people who wanted that badge of distinction for whatever reason were willing to pay the extra and then put the plain ones on sale for 4 bucks. Uh, you might be able to expand your sales way beyond 10 shirts to, to 100 shirts. And if you're selling... Just the same limited number at 15 bucks. They didn't cost you much more to produce with the emblem on it. And then you've way expanded production of the cheaper ones at, at four bucks. You're, you're going to make a lot more total earnings than if you'd sold just 10 shirts for 11 bucks. And, but don't you, you don't need to sell the $15 shirt. If you're mar- in any production or in most production, you, your cost per unit, each, each new one you make, is typically a little less, right? Because you're getting better at it. You're you're more efficient. Often there's fixed costs. You had to right. buy the factory. You had to right. whatever. And so each additional one is cheaper. If you stick to the average cost of $10, then th- your, your market reaches only so much. So if you sold all of them for, say, $3.50 and your marginal cost is $3, then you can – then you sell a 1,000 of them – and 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 now you've made three thousand five hundred dollars, and you've more than covered your fixed costs, and you're making a profit, right? Yeah. So, as long as you're selling shirts, some of your shirts for more than the marginal cost, if you're selling enough of them for more enough more than the marginal cost, you will cover your fixed costs, and you make a profit. That's what you need to do. It's very counterintuitive, though. I mean, like many economic ideas, it's just. Because it's a leap of faith if that's how you're going to do it, right? If you're like, wait, that one cost me – the first one cost me 20 bucks, and the second one cost yeah. me 18 bucks. How am I going to sell it for 3 bucks? These kinds of processes you're talking about are ones that we say exhibit economies of scale. The more you produce, the cheaper it is to produce things on the average. And it's true that when you have really substantial economies of scale, then by pricing the product low, you can so expand your market that you can make money even at a very low price. 
not all things have that because sometimes you right. it, it, there's jump conditions where you then have to build a second factory. Exactly. Or exactly. Not not every good is produced under economies of scale, but surprisingly many are. I think it's more often the case than not. In fact, right. It just seems natural that anything you do, you'll get better at. You'll right. learn how to. You'll yeah, find there's like, always some fixed cost in your system, and making more units let you spread that lets you spread that out over over more units and drives down the average cost. Okay, well, I think that is going to do it for us here today. Uh, two riddles posed, two riddles answered. If you have any economic riddles that you've been wondering about, send us an email to planetmoney at npr.org. Or drop them in the comments on our blog, npr.org slash money. I want to tell everyone to make sure to listen to This American Life this weekend. It is a Planet Money heavy show. You and I have a piece. David Kessenbaum has a piece. Hannah Jaffe Walt has a piece. It's going to be great. All about health insurance, part two. Right, exactly. And how we got to this uh, sort of crazy system that we have. When you look at it, it, it there's actually it, there's a very strange history to it, and it, there's all these very strange things that it does uh, to our health care and the way we, we think about it. Our piece talks about nostrums, FDR's son, and a variety of other fascinating facts. <laughs> exactly. So be sure to check that out. That's on this weekend on This American Life. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. 